The following sermon by Pastor Rick Holland is brought to you by Mission Road Bible Church. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. John chapter 16, follow along as I begin in verse 12. John 16, beginning in verse 12. I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will disclose it to you, what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will take care of mine and will disclose what is mine to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. Unfamiliar territory is best navigated with a guide. All of us could give some kind of testimony of that, whether it's being in a place where you needed someone to show you the way, whether it's being in our world where you have a GPS. Isn't it nice to live in the world of GPS? I mean, we didn't even have MapQuest when I grew up. It was just go down three stops, turn right. That was the, is the dirt road one of the third? It was, it was very complicated. Now you can just plug it in your GPS you can plug it in your phone and find your way. It's good to have guides. A few years ago, I was in, uh, I was in Alaska uh, doing some hiking. Let's just call it that. And uh, having a good time out in the woods with a friend of mine. We were uh, out there for uh, the better part of a week and um, enjoying what God had created and about a couple hours north of Anchorage. And I, grew, I was, with, was with a friend who grew up in that area. He knew the woods like the back of his hand. He knew them like his own living room and bedroom. He knew every tree. He knew the whole forest. As we left the truck and began on a little trek, he said, stick close to me, and if you, we get separated, stay still. We had a safety whistle, and he said, blow the whistle, and I'll, I'll come and find you. He said, don't try to find your way back to the truck. Now, I was born in Tennessee. I feel pretty comfortable in the woods. And I, I must admit a certain level of irritation at my pride with him saying this. I, I know, I can find my way back to the truck. What are you talking about? He didn't want me to get lost in the woods. He says, everything looks the same in Alaska because the, the sun just kind of does a little circle in the spring. It's always coming in the same direction. It's hard to find your orientation. So he said, just stick with me. I had no reason not to believe him, but at one point he put me to the test. We stopped in a pretty thick section of, of timber, and he asked me which way I thought it was to the truck. He even gave me a hint. He said, the truck is to the south. That was easy. It's that way. He said, you sure? I said, I'm absolutely sure the truck is that way. He said, you're sure? I said, yeah, it's kind of it's that direction, pretty much. He said, get out your compass. So I got my compass and looked at it. And I was pointing due north. He said, see how easy it is to get lost? I've never been more thankful than to have my guide and friend that day, especially when there were grizzly bears all around in that area. I want to be out there by myself. I would only be a, like an appetizer or a snack for a grizzly, but I still think I would be attractive to one. 
Are you laughing with me or are you laughing at me? In the passage before us, Jesus shows gracious compassion because he knew the disciples were heading into very unfamiliar territory. Territory in which they would think they knew what north and south was, but in which they would be incredibly lost without guidance. He had been their guide and their friend for three years. They'd never been lost. They'd never been without him. He was the one waging the theological battles. He was the one waging the safety battles for them. For three years, they had had a perfect guide. Is there a better guide than the incarnate God, Jesus Christ? But over and over throughout this discourse and over and over in the preceding chapters and over and over on his way to Jerusalem, he's told them, gentlemen, I'm going to be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees. They are going to try me. They're going to find me guilty of, of a capital offense. They're going to kill me, and I'm going to rise from the dead. They said, great, where do we get to sit? Total disconnect. He knows they're clueless. He knows they're knuckleheads. He knows they don't get it. He knows they don't understand. But he's, he's giving them this final instruction. And in this final instruction about the Holy Spirit, he says, you're not ready to get everything, but I'm going to send someone who's going to give you everything you need to know at the time you need to know it. As I said, this is the fifth portrait uh, statement about the person and work of the Holy Spirit in this farewell discourse. He talks about the Holy Spirit topically and personally more than anything else in his final discussion with his disciples. That's significant to me on at least two levels. First of all, Jesus cared that we would be cared for after he was gone. Secondly, he wanted us, one of the disciples, to understand the power and impact of the permanent abiding presence of the Spirit of God with us. So he unpacks this final lesson on pneumatology is the big word, on the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Now, the history of theology in general is a very interesting one, and it's really been a history of extremes. Typically, uh, movements in, in the, the church of, uh, course of church history will move to one extreme of a doctrine, and then those who react go to the other extreme of doctrine, and then finally, after they battle back and forth, we find the biblical middle. Certainly been the case with the Holy Spirit. But we see that bouncing back and forth even in our day, even in our city, even within a few miles of this building. You have one extreme that seems to think that the Holy Spirit is the only member of the Godhead that really matters, right? God was great. The Father was great. He created the world. Son was, I mean, the, the Son was wonderful. He, he died for our sins. But now God is all about the Holy Spirit. You may have met with some of these people. It's all about what the Spirit does, what the Spirit gives us. And typically, that kind of accent calls the Spirit an it, a force, this, this power rather than He, the third person of the Trinity. He sought out for power and for healing and for miracles and for charismatic experiences, for guidance down to the details of even revealing the place that we should park in a crowded lot during Christmas time. Now, I may or may not have prayed for a parking spot at Christmas time, but I think the Holy Spirit's ministry might be a little bigger than that. For these folks, the Holy Spirit is the central focus when considering God. And we can be really critical of those folks, and I think for good reason. But we have to be careful not to be on the other side, the opposite extreme as well. These are people who find it very easy to ignore the Holy Spirit, to think of Him as the third person of the Trinity, as really being in third place in the Trinity. 
He's number three for a reason. God the Father's great. God the Son died for a sin. The Holy Spirit is the caboose who kind of picks up all the details at the end. He's not sought. He's not honored. He's not prayed to. He's not prayed about. He's not utilized in the illuminating power of His presence when we read the Bible. He's not considered when we pray about what He can, should, and has promised to do in the lives of people that we interact with and even in our own lives. I think I find myself easier falling into that extreme than the other. I think I have a good pneumatology. I think I have a good grasp on the power of the Holy Spirit, the person of the Holy Spirit. But to be frank, uh, it's easy to forget that when we study God. So Jesus turns back to the Spirit's work in the lives and the minds of the disciples as his proxy, his representative, his go-between, his, his presence manifests from the Father and from the Son in the life of the believer. Now be very careful. Jesus is specifically talking here to these 11 men who followed him down toward the valley of Kidron. He's talking to these men knowing that they're going to have a very tough road ahead, knowing that they're going to be in very unfamiliar territory, knowing that they're going to need specific guidance to found the church and write the scriptures. But the promise of the Spirit also has radical and massive implications for you and for me. So in these verses, verses 8 through 11, Jesus speaks of, of the Spirit's mission field. That's what we studied last time. And then now in verses 12 to 15, He speaks of the Spirit's work in the church. Our last study, we looked at what the Spirit does in the world. He convicts the, the world of sin and righteousness. He comes to judge. Here, we find His work in the church. And we find these last admonitions that Jesus had about the Helper who was going to come to help. And His help would come in this final discourse about the Holy Spirit. His help would come in the form of guidance. Because Jesus understood spiritually that we need a guide in our spiritual pilgrimage just as someone who's deep in the woods of Alaska needs a guide to find their orientation there as well. So as we unpack this, this passage together, we're going to find two primary ministries of the Holy Spirit. If you want an outline to track along, that's what we're going to use. Two primary ministries of the Holy Spirit. We've already seen these in some measure and in some form, but this is kind of a summary statement that Jesus gives of the Spirit's work in our lives. Two primary ministries of the Holy Spirit. The first is in verses 12 and 13. He guides us to truth. He guides us to truth. So many people talk about the guidance of the Holy Spirit. What does that look like, really? How do you quantify, how do you define the, the guidance of the Holy Spirit? Verse 12. I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. Literally, the Greek says, you can't, cannot bear now. You, you can't even process this now. Remember the scene. Jesus is is in the last lap of his final instruction only hours ago. He was in the upper room. Now he is out in the valley with his disciples looking toward Gethsemane. 
They've made their way quietly and secretly. It's obvious they were, they were quiet and secretive because they had to be found down at Gethsemane. They moved through the streets of Jerusalem, about a half mile's walk, dropped down the eastern side of the Temple Mount. And as they go down that slope, Jesus discusses that, that epic illustration of the vine and the branches. And most scholars agree that that would have been covered with, with grapevines. It would have been a perfect illustration as he discusses, discusses our unity with him in our solidarity of faith. Now they're near the bottom of the Kidron Valley. Jesus knows he's a couple minutes from being done. After this, he'll cross over the valley, as chapter 19 says, chapter 18 says. He's going to move into the Garden of Gethsemane, take Peter, James, and John, and he is going to begin the unspeakable, unimaginable process of being forsaken by his Father. The Trinity in a strange period of a few hours, is going to be split because God would crush His Son. The first time in the history of the Godhead, He would walk into that garden. He would ask a question. Will you take this cup from me? No answer. Will you take this cup from me? No answer. Will you take this cup from me? Three times, no answer. And I believe that's the first time He had ever prayed without a perfect answer answer from his father that was the beginning of the culmination of what happened on the cross where he cried out my God, my God and it's hard to know where to put the accent why did you, why have you forsaken me or why have you forsaken me or why have you forsaken me all of those accents hit the power of his substitutionary death in our place for our sin when he did nothing wrong all of that's ahead of him. He's divine. He knows what's coming. He's predicted it. He knows what Judas is doing. And yet, he's concerned about these men that they're cared for in the next chapter of their ministries. One or two minutes, he's going to be done. And I can only imagine the tender looks of the Savior. These men were scared. They were confused. Wait a minute. Time it. You mean we're not actually going to sit on the throne with you tomorrow? You mean the right and the left doesn't matter? You mean you really are going to be killed? Well, this, this doesn't make sense to us. should have. He'd been telling them over and over. This was it. But there was more to say to them that he could compress into this time. Now, uh, he, he says, I, I, can't, I can't give you everything now because you can't handle it. You can't bear it. What is this about? It wasn't because they were out of time. Jesus was the master of time. He could have stayed in the upper room longer. He could have uh, made Judas uh, wait longer. He, he was in control of time. He had plenty of time. He wasn't about time. It was not because the disciples were, were not smart enough. Jesus had been teaching them some pretty heavy theology even that night. And he was very aware that they were willing and able to handle it. They were more than able to process good theology. Why could they not bear the things that Jesus had to tell them? Well, the answer to that's a very important uh, answer that, that will really help us understand the progress of Jesus' ministry over the last two and a half years. Why could they not bear to hear the things Jesus had to tell them? Well, the same answer to that question is the same answer to the question of why in the world he would do so many miracles, have so many experiences with people, 
and then tell them after these amazing experiences, these amazing miracles, don't tell anyone what just happened. Remember after Jesus uh, takes his men to Caesarea Philippi, just north of Galilee, he takes them up there to get away, a little bit of a retreat. In Matthew 16, 20, after Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, they finally figured out who Jesus is. You would expect them to go have a festival, a revival, a conference to tell everybody who Jesus is. After admitting and confessing, Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah, the Christ, Matthew 16, 20, right after that discussion says, then Jesus warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. Isn't that the point, Jesus? That we would tell everyone that you're the Christ? He says, don't. You've identified me as the Christ. Tell no one. It's even more interesting. After raising a little girl from the dead in Mark chapter 5, taking the child by the hand, he said to her, uh, Talitha kum, which translated means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl got up and began to walk, for she was 12 years old. And immediately they were completely astonished, I'd say. Girl's dead, she rises from the dead. And he gave them strict orders that no one should know about this. I love this little footnote. And he said, something should be given to her to eat. I love his care. Now, come on. If you're a parent and your child dies, and this man from Nazareth comes in and heals her and raises her from the dead, and then says, don't tell anybody this. Does that not seem a bit problematic to you? What do you talk about at dinner that night? Why? Why, Jesus? Why, why not tell everybody? He answers that question after another miraculous experience back in Matthew chapter 17, verse 9. Remember Matthew 17? He takes Peter, James, and John. He says, let's go up. It was in Caesarea Philippi right after Jesus had... Uh, 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 Peter had revealed Jesus' true identity. They go up on this, this ridge, on this mountain. He takes these three friends with him. And up there, he's transfigured. He's transformed. He peels back his flesh, the, the original text says, and, and shows them his glory. They get a glimpse of the brilliance of who he is. And Peter, the disciple with the foot-shaped mouth, says, well, let's just build three tents here. Let's just live here. This is the kingdom. What else do we need? Moses and Elijah show up. He says, that's pretty cool. When I get to heaven, I'm going to say, Peter, how did you know that it was Moses and Elijah? I mean, did they have name tags, or did they say, hi, I'm Moses? It doesn't tell us. In Matthew 17, 9, after that incredible experience, they're walking down the hill, and it says, Matthew says, as they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, here it is, tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. After Jesus had risen from the dead, he wanted everyone. The Great Commission came after the resurrection. Understand that. The Great Commission didn't come in Caesarea Philippi. You would expect the Great Commission to come right after Jesus, after Peter says to Jesus, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And he would say, go and make disciples of all nations. You get it. No, no. He didn't have the complete message. He didn't have the gospel yet. What does 1 Corinthians 15 say? 
Without the resurrection, there is no gospel. That's why they couldn't bear it. Now, what was Jesus supposed to tell them? How they were going to go preach the, 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 the raising of him from the dead and being witnessed by over 500 people? They couldn't bear the whole factuosity, factuality of what was going on yet. They didn't have it yet. That's what's going on here in John 16. They could not bear the full weight of the theology of the gospel until they'd seen the full expression of the facts of his death and resurrection. I mean, they're going, yeah, yeah, but well, hey, one, I, I need, I have another question. He is, you can't, you, I can understand now, guys. You can't bear it yet. Verse thirteen. But you can't handle it now. But let me tell you, when he, and I love this description, the spirit of what, truth. Now, you can say truth in opposition to error, and that's certainly what the Spirit reveals, but also truth in opposition to revealed knowledge and understanding that without Him we would never have. When the Spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit, comes, He, notice the personal nature, not it, He will guide you, there's our word, will guide you, lead you, into all the truth. Why does it say all the truth? They didn't, have all the truth yet. Jesus hadn't died and rose from the dead. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, whatever the Spirit hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. Now there's a whole pneumatology, there's a whole course on Holy Spirit theology just in this one verse. Notice again the Spirit is a he, not an it. He's a guide. He has an inner trinitary relationship with the Father and the Son. He speaks. He has a relationship with believers. But look more closely. Back in chapter 16, verse 8, the Spirit is told, we're told the Spirit will come. That happened in Acts 2. The Spirit came in Acts chapter 2, right? We know the story very well, the day of Pentecost. In Acts chapter 16, here in verse 13, in the first part, 13a, we find out the Spirit will lead into all the truth. And that was expressed in the writing in the New Testament. We know everything we need to know about God and the gospel because these men were used by God for the power and illumination and inspiration of the Holy Spirit to write those things down. And then the second part of verse 13, the Spirit will announce the things that are to come. You know what that is? That's the book of Revelation. That's the end. That's how the, the story ends. Don't miss, by the way, that all three of these are connected to the writing of the New Testament. All three are connected to the Word of God. The Holy Spirit still guides the church and believers through the living, active, real Word of God. What's being described here is really the, the gift of illumination by the Spirit that he will bring these things to the disciples' mind they need to record and write down and preach, but also that he'll canonize those things. He'll put those things in a book for us to know. He'll continue to lead us through what they recorded for us. It's the same thing that Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. A natural man does not accept the things of God. Why? They're foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. Spiritually can be a, 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 a cousin to the, the concept of the Holy Spirit. 
The Holy Spirit appraises spiritual realities in the mind and in the eyes and the ears of a believer in a way that an unbeliever can't understand it, rejects it, laughs at it. This last weekend I was preaching a passage in 2 Corinthians at Resolve, uh, the Resolve Conference in 2 Corinthians 11, which was the first text I preached here. Paul says, As a serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your mind would be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. That makes me afraid. And I talked about the fact that, you ever have Paul, the, the smartest theologian who ever lived, believed in a talking snake. I had two students from a Southern California university that claims to be Christian. It wasn't the Master's College for that footnote. And they came up to me, and they were pretty upset. They said, you mean to tell me that you believe that that's factual in Genesis chapter 3? And I said, well, forget what I believe. Paul believed that. I mean, is that not good enough? Jesus believed that. Is, is that not good enough? I mean, if you don't believe what the Spirit has written in Genesis 1, where do you, where do you start saying, okay, this is real, this is right? The Spirit of God inspired this book Every single word. He threw an amazing process of preserving the Scriptures. Kept it for us. This is all about having your Bible and reading your Bible, folks. This is it. The Spirit would put these things in our mind by recording them. There's a second primary ministry of the Holy Spirit in verses 14 and 15, he guides us to Christ. He doesn't just guide us into truth, which is obviously canonized in Scripture, but he also guides us to Christ. The Scriptures lead to Christ. You would expect this would be the next point. Jesus says, He, the Holy Spirit, will glorify me. Now just stop and let that marinate for a second. You have one member of the Godhead saying that another member of the Godhead will point to one of the members of the Godhead. That's significant. He will shine a light, spotlight, highlight, glorify, accent, underline. He will glorify me. Now, for a man to say that, he's either divine and a member of the Godhead, or he is the most arrogant human who's ever lived. How can Jesus say that a member of the Godhead would would glorify Him. He does. For He will take of mine and will disclose it to you. What is mine? What, is it, what does He own there? That's the contents of the gospel message. That's what He can't impart in, in total for the, for the men back two verses ago. What is mine is the redemptive message of salvation in Christ. He will take of mine and He will show it to you, disclose it to you, reveal it to you. All things that the Father has, has are mine. Therefore, I said, what he takes of mine, that he takes of mine, and will disclose it to you. Now, in verse 14, we find the most significant ministry of the Holy Spirit. He guides the mind to Christ. No man will ever believe the gospel. No man will ever identify who Jesus is without the work of of the Spirit of God on his life and mind and conscience. It is utterly impossible for a natural man to come to that conclusion logically. The Spirit of God opens the eyes, opens the heart, opens the mind 
No man stands neutral. We're, we're not um, Thomistic in our theology. That's from Thomas Aquinas. Thomas Aquinas, Catholic theologian, said, man stands neutral. He can look at evil and the devil, he can look at God and righteousness, and he can choose. Now, we're totally depraved before our salvation, which means even our thought processes are unable to bring us to the knowledge of the truth. He turns on the light switch and he alone. You say, what about people who say they believe and they fall away? Well, Jesus told a parable about that, didn't he? He told a parable with four examples. Uh, the parable of the seed and the sower. Of those four examples, three of them looked really good at first and all fell away. Only one lasted. And that's the one that's wrought by the Spirit. Now these, these verses are, are, are in the deep end of the theology pool. I was just looking at it again this morning and just, just smiled and said, wow, I, I need to meditate more on this and even with that, I think I'll get to heaven and have questions about it, curiosities about it that I want answered. The work of the Spirit is, get this, Christocentric. It's centered on Christ. It's not his intention, the text says, to draw attention to himself. He won't speak about himself, but he speaks about Christ. His primary focus is to tell sinners they can come to the saving knowledge of the Savior because of who Jesus is, who he was, God in the flesh, because of his life, a perfect life lived in righteousness, righteousness, because of his willing sacrifice where he would die in the place of, as a substitute for sinners who would put their faith in him and prove who he was by rising from the grave. The Spirit's work is to tell people that through the reading of Scripture and through our evangelism. He glorifies Christ. We also find, by the way, here in this final verse, all three members of the Trinity. In verse 15, you find the Father, you find the Son, and you find the Spirit. All three. I love passages that put them all together. The density of that theology. Notice that in verse 14 is also in the future tense, describing what the Holy Spirit will do after He comes. We are now on the other side of the resurrection, so we are in the will-do category. This is what he does now. We're on this side of Acts chapter 2. Very simply, what does the Spirit do? He glorifies Jesus. He makes much of Jesus. He explains the gospel. His focus is on Christ. Now, this is important because so many people, remember we were saying a minute ago, who, who think that the Spirit is the main part of the Godhead to focus on? The Spirit would say to those people who are focusing on Him, no, no, Look to Jesus. That really? Look to Christ. My job is to glorify Christ. You come to me, I'm going to go to Christ. I'm pointing to Him. He is the one, I want you to see this in Colossians chapter 1. He's the one who makes this happen. Colossians 1, He is, verse 18, Jesus is the head of the body of the church. He Himself is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that He Himself will come to have first place in everything. How does that happen? The work of the Spirit, prioritizing Jesus, reminding us of who Jesus is, of His presence, in the moment, for our decisions. I can't help but borrow from the next chapter in 
In the high priestly prayer in chapter 17, where Jesus says in verse 10, All things that are mine are yours, speaking to the Father. And yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. Where does truth belong? Who does truth belong to? The Father, the Son, or the Spirit? And the answer is yes. Letter C, letter D, all of the above, right? The mystery of this is, I think, explained in Matthew 11, 27. And this is one you just have to stand back and wonder and worship. You can't fully grasp it. Jesus says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal to them. How does the Son of God, how does God the Father, reveal the gospel to the hearts of those who believe? It's through the power of the Holy Spirit, the illuminating power and presence of the Holy Spirit. I'm always uncomfortable talking about stuff that's related to, to me personally, which this book I wrote, okay? I don't, I don't like talking about it. But I was brutalized uh, by a reviewer who, who just took this book, Uneclipsing the Sun, that I wrote, and he just, I mean, he crucified me on a toothpick about this thing. It just tore me up. And the main thing that he, and I was wanted to be corrected if I had done anything wrong in the book, but the main point of his, of his, of his review was this. Holland believes that you should focus on Jesus when you look at the, at the Godhead, when you look at the Trinity. And so I said, well, is that true? Remember at Jesus' baptism? Remember at, um, at, the, the, at the transfiguration? What did God the Father say? This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him, right? Here the Holy Spirit says, my purpose is to glorify Christ. I think that we are in good, on good biblical grounds when we focus on the second person of the Trinity. If it was the accent of the Holy Spirit, it should be our accent as well. Jesus says the Holy Spirit will glorify the Son. Here's the question. All that leads to one question. Does your life accomplish the purpose of the Holy Spirit's work? Does your affections, do your affections reveal the work of the Holy Spirit? Does your faith reflect that the Holy Spirit is at work in your life? How do you answer that? Because Jesus and the gospel are glorified in your deepest, most intimate passions. That evangelism is precious because we're explaining the excellencies of him who called us, the Lord Jesus Christ in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 10. Holy Spirit says, I'm going to guide you, but I'm going to guide you to Christ. And I'm going to guide you in the truth, and all the truth lands and ends and is fulfilled in Christ. And when you get to heaven, the focus, Revelation 5, is behold the Lamb, right? Unmistakable. If the Holy Spirit wants us to focus on Christ then, then the Holy Spirit intends for us to focus on Christ now. So where's the work of the Holy Spirit in your life? Ask yourself, how precious is Jesus? That's the answer. 
He's precious. He's fast at work in your life. If Jesus is marginal, if Jesus is supplemental, if Jesus is a part of your thinking rather than a point of your life, could be that the Holy Spirit is either not working or we're grieving Him by holding on to sin rather than the Savior. Where does that leave us? If we know Christ, then we know where to ask the Spirit to move in our lives. Illumine my mind to see and glorify Christ. But here's the deal. If you don't know Christ, you came to Mission Road at a great day because this passage was for you. This passage tells you that you have a Savior whose arms are open wide, waiting for you to respond to what the Spirit of God has opened up in your mind that you have an opportunity to repent and be saved from hell and be saved to God in heaven forever. Don't leave the building without talking to someone, making that decision, getting that business settled before the Lord. Nothing is worth it. Lunch isn't worth sacrificing thinking about your soul. I want to ask you to bow your heads for a moment. I'm going to pray and dismiss this, and after I do, to my right, standing at the door will be John Rosenbaum, and I'll find my way over there as well. If you'd like to talk about anything related to your soul, anything that you have questions about in the Bible, we'd love to try to help you and serve you and answer. If you want to talk about joining our church, if you want to talk about something that's going on in your life, if you just want us to pray with you, we'd love to take you into our prayer room, just through that door, and just serve you in any way we can. Father, our hearts are gripped by the power of the gospel because we know that that's the supernatural work of your Spirit that informs us to love you and your truth, to love you and your Son. Teach us to glorify the Son because the Spirit is glorifying the Son through us and with us. A lot of time this week we'll have to be off and to think, fellowship, to interact with our family. In the midst of vacation ideas and vacation thoughts, oh Father, don't let us, don't allow us to have a vacation in our thinking from Christ. To keep Him preeminent and in first place in everything. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a presentation of Mission Road Bible Church in Prairie Village, Kansas. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com.